Hi, and welcome back to Court Jesters, two attorneys who like to talk about the law in fun ways. I'm Kate. I'm Melissa. And this week we are talking about death. Yes. Um, So this is something that I requested um, recently. Unfortunately, my grandpa passed away, Mm -hmm. so this has been on my mind a lot. Um, Yeah. So... Um, he was 95 years old, um, passed away on January 7th, and he had been diagnosed with um, bladder cancer, and mm-hmm. he had declined treatment for it, which I totally agree with. Like, I probably would have done the same thing. Like, yeah. with cancer, it's like the treatment's worse than right. yeah. the cure. Or, I don't know if you can call it a cure, but um, yeah. The, so... Being 95 years old, having lived a great life. He really did have a great life. Yeah. Um, he did pass away. I'm really just thankful that he's no longer suffering. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't unexpected, but I don't know. It it's It's been a couple of months, I think, mm-hmm. of like yeah. realizing this is coming. So right. not unexpected, but I don't know. It's still rough. Yeah. So... Um, in terms of civil law, where I started off first, um, along with your will, trusts, powers of attorney, um, planning documents should also include a funeral plan and a designation of a funeral representative. Um, so I actually went on deathwithdignity.org. They have a really great, um, they have some great content about, all about death with with dignity and what to expect and how to plan for it um i've just been thinking a lot i think because of like the situation of of my grandpa of like what would i want to do in that situation yeah i think a lot of people also think of that as well um but to go a step further and think about okay now um planning the funeral um funerals there's a saying, funerals are for the living, not the dead. And I 100% agree with that. It's for, like, you're dead. You're not there anymore. Yeah. Your body is a shell. Um, and it's for that grieving process, adding finality. Um, planning for the disposition of your body. Um, you might want to just say, I don't know, I can deal with it. It's not mine. I want my family to deal with it however best they're going to grieve. Um, but if you're making plans, it gives you the opportunity not only to confront your own mortality, but also help your loved ones avoid making painful decisions uh, about what to do while they're also grieving. Mm. So there's a couple of options of what to do after you die. Um, there's two main ones in the United States. You have cremation or burial. There's a third Third option, less frequently used uh, for body donation, for medical education, or scientific research. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of dive down into these options. Um, body disposition is more of a state's decision on mm-hmm. making rules for. So all of these methods, it depends on your state, what they have authorized, and um, a lot of states have like specific rules on when where how this burial occurs so this is more i want to kind of knock this out first because it's more of like planning stages so pre kind of a good thing to think about Mm -hmm. so we have what's called 
traditional burial. This is where you get embalmed. Um, I know originally embalming fluid was like arsenic, um, mm-hmm. but then they realized that's very not safe for the actual funeral director or embalmer. So mm-hmm. now it's more of a mixture of formaldehyde and mm-hmm. other chemicals. Um, so they flush you out, pump chemicals into you, dress you up really nicely. Um, I kind of thought as a possible other career choice to do mortuary science and mm. get in the profession of, um, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but it's like cosmetology, but for dead people. So oh, you do yeah. all the, like, the yep. makeup and like mm-hmm. fix any issues. Yeah. And basically make the body look as realistic as possible. Yeah. There's a viewing, there's a visitation, there's a funeral service, there's transportation to the cemetery, a casket entombed with an outer, typically concrete vault um, or a cemetery plot or crypts. Um, It is the most expensive option for this type of body disposition. It's also got a really high environmental footprint with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because when you are embalmed, you're full of chemicals, which is right. Like it can't really go back to the earth in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, you have to make sure everything's sealed up, so it's taking right. away space from. I mean, to be per- like personally, I love cemeteries, especially like the really old Victorian cemeteries. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were specifically built for people to come visit. It was like right. go have a picnic with grandma and like toss a yeah. stuffy around so like it's they're really nice tranquil pl- peaceful places to go and visit but mm-hmm. now you know there's so many people and everyone dies yeah so we don't have enough space for everyone to get buried and have this gorgeous right park-like cemetery yeah um so the next option is called a green burial also known as a direct burial or a natural burial there's no chemicals, so it has to take place shortly after death. They use either a simple wooden casket or a shroud. Uh, now, there are new alternatives, like it, the mushroom suit. Um, so they basically bury you in the shroud, with which has additional mushroom spores that grow oh, in the mushrooms. And yeah. what it does is it accelerates decomposition of the body and all the toxins that are in the body as well. Mm-hmm. So it just speeds up that process which is good because so when we talk about like environmental impacts like the process of decomp impacts the environment you're releasing gases um it's it's not a you don't want to be around any decomposing bodies it's not pleasant so the faster and more natural that can go the better um just for the environment uh now typically because there's no chemicals there's no viewing or visitation, although there, of course, can still be a mo- memorial service or ceremony, and it can be held at the gravesite or at a later date. Um, so here is my, I don't know where all my comments went, but um, the state of, my weird law, state of Washington also recently started to allow human composting, which turns your body mm-hmm. into soil. Uh, your descendants can then retrieve the soil, or you can donate it to a conservation organization. Mm-hmm. Um, Washington... Like yeah, Washington has is kind of known for the state of being like the most I don't know if progressive is the right word, but they're the fastest to like try mm-hmm. out and approve new burial techniques. Hmm. Um 
and I'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, but this is more environmentally friendly, obviously. Um, but you do have to do a little bit more research and make sure you find um, a conservation burial ground or a green cemetery because not all mm -hmm. cemeteries will, will do this. So I'll be like, yeah, yeah, you have to get involved. That's just what we right. do. Also, again, depends on your state laws. Yeah. So then we have cremation. So cremation is the use of heat, um, dry heat typically. So it's incineration. And it doesn't actually turn your body into ash. It's mm -hmm. It usually takes around 90 minutes. It's super, super, super hot, like thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and it turns your – everything basically burns away to nothing except for your bones – um, mm -hmm. they turn into little tiny bone fragments and then those get pulverized and it resembles ash. Mm -hmm. So that's why they, they call mm -hmm. it ash. Um, so you need to also figure out body delivery. So getting the body to the crematorium from wherever you died. Um, mm -hmm. some funeral homes provide that service, like a direct, it's called a direct crematory, or you have to have like an intermediary that is designated to transport bodies because you mm -hmm. can't just like throw a body in the trunk of your car and right. take it over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you also have to make other decisions like who's going to witness the cremation, choice of containers, and disposition of, or disposition of ashes, I should say, because you don't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be in a container. Um, I think there was, I've, I've seen a clip on TikTok of uh, Chris Kardashian saying that she wants to be turned into a diamond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, I mean, it's kind of cool. But like, yeah. there's other cool things I've seen. Like, you put uh, different amounts of ashes into different jewelry and you distribute the mm -hmm. jewelry to, to yep. members of the family. Like, that's really sweet. Yeah. Like, so, I, I think that is a pretty good option. Um, it mm -hmm. also is increasing in popularity. So, like, in the 1950s, it was only 5% of mm -hmm. um, body disposition was cremation 95 mm -hmm. was traditional burial and as of 2016 over 50 percent uh our bodies are now cremated instead of buried oh, okay. and hmm. they're projecting that to be like upwards of like 85 percent yeah um, within the next couple of years so that's cool you can it's also just, use you know, um ashes as in a tattoo that's something that i've ooh. really wanted to do with my grandma's ashes but it's something i haven't got around to doing but i think that's really cool it's like you're always carrying a part of them with you i think it was also um a podcast maybe i was listening to i'm not sure which one but they were saying how you can there's like tattoo preservation mm -hmm. so you can like it's only sp like a, i think a specific funeral home in canada i want to say where they well um carefully cut out a tattoo of a deceased loved ones and like mm, like carefully preserve it and they right. don't they will only preserve it and then frame it and then you mm -hmm. get that like shadow right. box sort of thing back they won't do any like special requests like yeah. can't be turned into a book kind right. of thing right um yeah i think that's pretty cool too because i mean like that person when they got that tattoo like that meant a lot to them right so I think that would be kind of memorable. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think the photo of the tattoo also works, but. <laughs> right. I feel like I, like, that's, I don't want to say it's weird, but I, I think I'd be uncomfortable with it personally. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what I'd do with it. Like, do you just hang it on the wall? Like, I, you know. I guess. But it, it, that's a little, 
I don't know. Weird, I guess, is the word. <laughs> but I guess, listen, yeah, if no it judgment. helps your grieving process, like, go yeah, for it. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. as long as it's, like I said, it's it's all ethical. It's not like, you know, right. we're gain getting turned right, into a lampshade. Exactly. Something yeah. like that. Okay. All right. So another option is a little bit newer. Um, going back to the state of Washington, they were one of the first... Uh, states to uh, allow this it's called aquamation or resumation aquamation or water cremation Hmm. so this is a non-incinerating variation form of cremation it uses chemicals and heat to dissolve your body into liquid um, which is a sterile liquid and then stored in some sort of container Um, it's not legal in every state it is mm-hmm. a much lower carbon footprint than regular cremation or burial, um, because with the with cremation, it your body doesn't take up as much space in the ground, and you don't have yeah. all the chemicals being left over as well. But right. the cremation process itself takes a lot yeah. of energy to burn that hot for that long of time. And aquamation, it, usually they use lye, and so immediately mm-hmm. I think of like break. Breaking Bad when they would right. dispose of the bodies in the containers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, how, how, how does that make a sterile liquid? And then, like, what do you yeah. do with this? I would think it would be, I don't know how much liquid is left and, like, right. what size of container, what you can yeah. do. Like, it doesn't seem as, um, you don't have as many options Yeah. as you do with ashes. Um, yeah. But it is a lower carbon footprint. So if that's like your main concern of like once I'm gone, I'm gone. I don't want to take up space. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another option. Um, yeah. And then lastly is um, body donation. So this is really cool. Um, if I, you know, were to die recently and I had to choose something, this is what I would want. Mm-hmm. This is my verbal holographic will, <laughs> which is probably not enforceable, but you can use it in probate court anyways, and I'm sure they'll follow my wishes. Anyways, so body donation is where you donate your body to a medical school or mortuary school to be used for training or for research. Mm. This is the key. You really have to check with the institution where you want your body donated, um, and mm-hmm. you want to have a backup plan in case your donation is rejected. Um, or if the institution does not have a need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't just say, donate my body to science. Like, right. you can, but, like, now your loved ones have to, like, figure out how to do that. Yeah. And there's not that many places that take bodies. And then also it'll depend on your, like, how you died. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, is someone doing research specifically that your body can be used for or um, like if you're in a horrible accident and you're completely, completely just like in pieces, like you can't really be used as like autopsy practice. Right. Right. A cadaver of some sort. Yeah. Right? It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to end up well. So. Yeah. I so I have like a list of priority of what I would like. Like number one, donate any living tissue that you can save. Mm-hmm. So like like I'm an organ donor, so that's on my ID. So right, anything that can keep someone else living, do that first. Then donate yeah. my body to science, and mm-hmm. then um, 
whatever's left or if it gets rejected then probably some sort of human composting or cremation i'm not yeah. super picky <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, some other options that kind of fit within those categories. Um, you can donate your body to a body farm. Um, so that's donation, but it's, it's for, um, uh, what is it called? Forensic? Yeah. Like like forensic research. Yeah. So they basically just throw your body in a field and they, um, kind of record the rate of decomposition with Mm -hmm. different, um, factors or yeah things like that in different scenarios yeah and like what bugs come and eat at different times so then they can it helps to determine time of death in like murder cases or if they find Mm -hmm. another body how can we figure out exactly when this like and and find out other things like that so yeah it's kind of like donating to science but it's um it's not kind of like the traditional yeah it's more like forensic instead of like medical basically yeah Mm -hmm. Um, there's also, I saw something called a living reef. It's a type of green burial and it's only for like coastal, uh, cities. And I, again, I think it's more of like, depends on where you're at, Mm -hmm. but they basically put your body in the ocean to turn into, um, to a reef, which is cool. Oh, interesting. Uh, And then lastly, there's this, uh, you could purchase because uh, you're not donating you have to pay for it but it's cryogenics oh Find a, yeah. comp- a company to freeze your body with the false false <laughs> belief that maybe at some point in the future they can reanimate you and they're like i didn't look too far into this because it's just ridiculous yeah you're dead just leave it alone don't don't <laughs> how many horror movies do we have to watch about coming back to life and it not going well Right. (laughs) Although I do, have you watched? uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's called Upload. Mm -mm. It's about um, basically how you upload your conscience into this alternate reality. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's all about um, like class structure and how like the ultra rich have this really like plush afterlife, and the poor people don't. And it's like this is all artificial intelligence. Why can't this just be accessible to everyone? Yeah, I thought that was really cool concept yeah. of just like yeah. class structure and yeah um, like the idea of your consciousness being able to be uploaded right. like very black mirror as well yeah um, yeah i was gonna say it reminded me of that episode um sand something starts with a j oh i can't sand. think of it yeah i know yes but it reminds me of that yeah it's the it's the one with the song Ooh, baby do you yep. know what that's worth <laughs> i love that episode one yeah. of the episodes of Black Mirror that I actually really love because a lot of the other ones are just so creepy. Yeah. All right. Okay. So these are all like pre-planning options. Now, if you don't have a funeral plan in place, who gets to make decisions? So um, Michigan Court, uh, Michigan Compiled Laws, 700.3206, Section 3. Um, if you're a service member, any U.S. laws or statutes uh, make the decision or instructions by the Department of Defense. Uh, then, of course, we talked about naming a funeral representative in your planning paperwork. Uh, if you haven't done that, then a spouse, then your children, then your parents, then your siblings. Basically, traditional mm-hmm. like ranking that you would think of. Right. 
Now, this is interesting, though. If a higher priority person affirmatively declines to exercise his or her right or fails to exercise his or her right within 48 hours after receiving notification of the death, the individual does not have the right to make a decision about the disinterment of the decedent's body or possession of the decedent's cremated remains. So, if mom doesn't want to make any decisions and it's been 48 hours she's just screaming so much she just can't come to any conclusion so then it falls to the brother of the deceased person um, Mm -hmm. to decide what to do and let's say they decide well let's cremate it's what we can afford it gives us more flexibility whatever it is so now mom can't come back and say well i get the ashes and here's what we're going to do with the ashes okay you've lost that right I and we get calls sometimes to our organization about issues with possession of cremains. Oh, it's really hard. It's yeah, because a lot of this stuff is just the funeral home and end up making these decisions. But uh, hopefully, and usually, funeral homes have a ton of regulations they have to file mm-hmm. follow, and they know the laws really well, and so they don't just like. To, again, hopefully, <laughs> this is like yeah. traditionally what happens. Like they're they're not going to be all wishy washy with it. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions to that, which I have found a lot of, which I think I'm mm. going to go <laughs> into uh, a part two of this the mm. topic regarding uh, funeral homes gone wrong. Um, probably in a, an episode closer to Halloween because it was just very grisly. Mm. Um, but. Yes, so there there are of course issues that arise about who gets to make these decisions and uh, who gets the cremains and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, what if there is no family at all, or they all just don't want anything to do with your body? <laughs> um, then, if there's like some sort of personal representative in your will, uh, if not, then if you had a guardian at the time of your death, if you didn't have a guardian at the time of your death. Uh, then basically the probate court has to appoint a special fiduciary um, or the medical examiner can make the decision. Now, if the person who died was incarcerated and no one comes forward to be like, I'll pick up this body or I'll claim this Mm -hmm. body from the prison, the Department of Corrections makes the decision. Mm -hmm. So I don't don't know if they do like a pauper's grave or cremation or, I don't know, a little sketch, but... yeah. All right, so so who actually owns your body after you die? Well, there is this case from the state of, well, it's actually from the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, mm-hmm. um, but it comes from the state of Michigan, um, 1995, at Whaley versus the county of Tuscola. Uh, the plaintiffs um, are actually a number of family members of deceased persons whose bodies were the object of autopsies by Dr. Ronald Hines at the Saginaw Community Hospital. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Hines's deaner, it's D-I-E-N-E-R, mm-hmm. and I know I pronounced it correctly because I looked at the pronunciation and put mm-hmm. a note that says, it's pronounced like wiener, but with a D. <laughs> So deaner, um, and a deaner is basically just a fancy word for assistant. I don't know why. Huh. I was like, I don't know if it's because it's like related to death, like die. Maybe, like yeah. D I E. 
I don't know, but it, it's the it's the assistant of the doctor who performed the autopsies. Mm. Um, so the assistant who is dead at the time of this lawsuit as well, ironically, mm-hmm. his name was Armando Herrera, and he coincidentally or not coincidentally owned and operated the Central Michigan Eye Bank and the Tissue Center. Mm-hmm. And was certified a nucleator, having the ability to remove eyes and corneas without causing damage to them. So Herrera, as the assistant, apparently had a business agreement with Saginaw and Tuscola counties in which he would pay for all of the county's expenses in performing autopsies whenever corneas were removed and half of those expenses when they were not. So a body mm-hmm. comes in can't get the corneas i'll pay for half of the expenses Mm -hmm. body comes in i can get the eyeballs i'll pay for all the expenses yeah so i don't know how that uh, arrangement worked but apparently he was selling these for a lot of money because right worked out in his favor um so pursuant to his duties and assisting the um dr hines herrera would sew up the body after the autopsy was finished he would allegedly remove the corneas and sometimes the eyeballs at this time and sell them out of his eye bank in all of these cases this was supposedly done without the next of kin's permission or even knowledge Mm -hmm. um uh, so a lot of times the next of kin were never even asked but in other cases the next of kin specifically refused to give their consent um Mm -hmm. but allegedly they they were like no we the county gets to make that decision so yeah we're gonna take the eyeballs because it it benefits us it lowers our costs mm-hmm. um so the plaintiff filed the lawsuit in federal and state court eventually they agreed to dismiss all their claims except for the 14th amendment due process clause of the u.s constitution um in which case um state actors are allegedly taking their property interest mm-hmm. without consent or process of law Um, So after hearing the lower court dismiss the claim, holding that Michigan law does not create an interest in a dead body sufficient to qualify as a property interest under the 14th Amendment's due process clause, and the plaintiffs appealed. Um, So then we come up to the the court where we're at. So 14th Amendment, they go through, the court goes through what that means. They go through case precedent. They go through Michigan law. It's the Sixth Circuit. So um, the Sixth Circuit will look at other Sixth Circuit cases, even if they're not in that same state. So Ohio mm-hmm. is also in the Sixth Circuit um, jurisdiction. So they looked at Ohio law, and they basically said Michigan and Ohio law are basically the same. But and we already decided Ohio does give this property interest. So mm-hmm. um, they basically said, accordingly, the Mexican may bring a constitutional claim under the Due Process Clause. So we reverse the court's decision and remand for further proceedings. So they basically mm-hmm. said... No, you you do own uh, the body, not yeah someone else. It's the next of kin. Yeah. Um, so even though you do have this property interest, next of kin owns the body. As I said previously, like states must have laws on how, when, who can dispose, actually dispose of these bodies. So bury mm-hmm. them, um, cremate them, do any of the other things I mentioned before. Yeah. And... So part two will be what happens when this law is violated. <laughs> um, it gets really grisly. And then uh, I'm like, okay, after we're talking about removing corneas and eyeballs from dead bodies, <laughs> like, that might be enough for now. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So that's 
that's it for me at this time. All right. Well, this week I covered uh, Dr. Jack Vorkian, also known as Dr. Death, uh, which I don't really like for him, to be honest. <laughs> it's a little, it's derogatory. It's a morbid. And it's morbid. Yeah. And I just, I remember this case as a kid and it being called Dr. Death definitely gave me like a negative view on it, even though I didn't really mm-hmm. know what was going on because I was young, you know. Um, yeah, it kind of gives you that like angel of death vibe like right. someone is coming in and killing you yeah without needing to or without your knowledge or consent right exactly so dr kevorkian was born uh i'm not positive i'm gonna pronounce this correctly murad i believe jacob kevorkian but he went by jack um he was born on may 26th of 1928 in pontiac michigan to armenian immigrants from turkey He was considered a child prodigy. He taught himself multiple languages, including German, Russian, Greek, and Japanese. And unfortunately, I know. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, this often did alienate him from his peers because other kids simply didn't seem to understand him. Um, As a child, he was taken to weekly church services at an Orthodox church with his parents. But by age 12, he already had numerous questions about the religion. Um, Namely, he felt that an all-knowing, all-loving God uh, would have prevented the Armenian genocide that forced his family to emigrate into the States. Um, So he stopped attending church with his family around age 12 when he kind of came to that conclusion about his, his beliefs in the church. Uh, He graduated from Pontiac Central High School in 1945 at age 17, and he went on to study medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor. He graduated from there in 1952. And following medical school, he completed his residency in anatomical and clinical pathology. And I looked this up because pathology to me, um, I associate it with like medical examiners, but I didn't think that's what he did. Um, So I was trying to look at the definition of it and the first thing that comes up is it's someone who examines bodies and body tissue and i was like isn't that all doctors though but yeah but like they i know they send like samples like if they take a yeah. biopsy or something they send it to pathology so. right so yeah. yep so it seems like the consensus is usually they specialize in laboratory work so i think what he did was probably work in a lab and then assist other doctors in making diagnoses um from there So he went on to work for Henry Ford Hospital, Pontiac General Hospital, and Michigan Medicine as a pathologist. In 1959, he published his first controversial piece related to death. So pretty early in his career, he's like seven years in at this point only, um, when he starts, you know, really examining death from a medical perspective and the ethics surrounding it. Um, So he wrote an article titled Capital Punishment or Capital Gain, um, which is such a great title. I love a play on words, but like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I love his theory so much here, but um, it was published in the Journal of Law, Criminology, and Police Science. And in it, he stated, I propose that a prisoner condemned to death by due process of law be allowed to submit by his own free choice to medical experimentation under complete anesthesia um, at the time appointed for administering the penalty as a form of execution in lieu of conventional methods prescribed by law. So basically what he's saying is that he believes if you're sentenced to death by law, you're on death row, you should be able to choose instead of just a lethal injection. I want to basically allow myself to be experimented on while alive, but unconscious. 
Um, yeah. So like at least I can contribute something. Right. So I guess that would be really the only benefit to it would be for someone to have that mindset. I, I want to give back. Um, apart from that, it just as a criminal defense attorney, it just rubs me wrong a little bit because my my clients are still human beings. And it's just the idea of them being experimented on is like it's. I don't know. It's a little weird to me, but at least he emphasizes it's by your own free choice. So it would be right. someone who wanted to do this. I mean, and preferably there just wouldn't be. Right. Penalty. Exactly. Right. Because, I mean, the, all of the uh, methods that they use for mm-hmm. even like lethal injection, like it all, it still does not seem pleasant at all. Yeah. It's almost like. If I get to choose, it's like give me the guillotine, like right? Something that yeah. would guarantee to be fast and quick and pain, as yeah, painless as possible. Yeah. Though that freaks me out because they say that you stay conscious for like 120 seconds after your head is cut off. So that's like not the way I want to go. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh Just, God. I don't know. Give me some really nice really nice drugs and, and then when i'm asleep cut my head off i get i don't know I don't right know. <laughs> um so uh dr kevorkian would later go on to also advocate for organ transplants from prisoners who had been executed which again i i think makes sense though um especially mm-hmm. like if it's th- by their own choice and ultimately yeah. my thoughts on this are we really don't execute that many people um like in michigan we don't at all it's we don't have the death penalty here but even nationwide, I don't believe that we do that many executions every year. So how practical is this really anyway? But, you know, I see wh- where he's coming from on this. As a part of his work as a pathologist, he began experimenting with transfusing blood from the recently deceased into live patients, which he actually found could work successfully. Mm-hmm. He thought that this would be particularly useful to help wounded soldiers during battle, and yet it's not a technique that ever really took on. I think that's in part because even though it was successful, he himself actually contracted hepatitis C from doing this, so he took the blood from the deceased person and put it into his own body. And that is ultimately what killed him. He lived many years. He didn't die until 2011, but he died from a blood clot that was directly related to hepatitis C. So uh, I don't know if that's just like they didn't test blood back then or like there's not enough time to do tests on the blood when you're taking it from a deceased corpse. I'm not sure, but either way, doesn't sound like a great technique since he himself he ultimately really... perished from it. So, but he did keep experimenting and things like this throughout his early career. In the 1980s was when he first began to really focus on the idea of euthanasia. So he went to write a series of articles in a journal called Law and Medicine about euthanasia and his thoughts on the ethics surrounding it. And then in 1987, he started advertising in Detroit newspapers as a physician consultant for what he called death counseling. So his first assisted suicide took place in 1990. The patient's name was Janet Atkins, and she was a 54-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease a year before. So he basically assisted her in committing suicide. He did a taped interview with her beforehand where she talks about that being her desire and that that is what she wanted to do. And then he did have her basically what they would do would be to with a lethal injection, he would pin the IV basically with like a clip and then the patient themselves would unclip it when 
they felt like they were ready to go. Mm -hmm. So they themselves would be the ones that would actually administer the drug, which seems like a technical thing. And it it is, but it is very important to the legal analysis of this case. He was initially charged in this case with murder, but the charges were dropped because there was no statute at that time regarding assisted suicide in Michigan. Um, So they couldn't argue murder because he wasn't the one that actually pushed the the button or turned on the Mm -hmm. machine so and when i say the cases were dropped i also want to clarify it was it was not like the prosecutor was like oh gosh jolly gee i don't have a case i'm going to dismiss it yeah like it was like it went through the court process and the judges threw out the cases because they didn't have probable cause so that would change though quickly after um, as a result of this case basically the state legislature tried to act very quickly they enacted the statute that did two things the first thing was it made a committee on the ethics of euthanasia to basically debate this issue and see whether or not it was an issue that should be implemented in law long term and then it did yeah and i think that's important like right yeah no matter where you come down on it it's like it is a decision us as a society needs to say like where where do we stand morally like where do we draw that line right yeah So they did have this committee formed in order to kind of make that determination. And in the meantime, I believe it was like a three-year period, the statute would also make it illegal to assist in suicides. So there were three more suicides that Dr. Kevorkian assisted with in that time period, and he was charged under the statute each of those three times. But in all of those cases, the circuit court judges found the statute to be unconstitutional. And then that was Hmm. appealed up to the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, which both did agree with this. They struck the statute down as unconstitutional, but not for the reasons that you'd think or that Dr. Kevorkian was really going for. So why they said it was unconstitutional was that the state's constitution says that a statute can only have one clear goal, whereas this one had two. It was to enact the committee, but also to criminalize assisted suicide. So it was unconstitutional only because it was trying to enforce two different laws, but they were very clear that they did not believe that there was a constitutional right to die or to suicide. So it was a win in a way, but it ultimately, it just, what it did was so make the governor. So basically if the law was drafted differently, differently it might have Right. So it basically just told the result. governor what he needed to do in order to mm-hmm. get a law that would be upheld. And that is ultimately what happened is they went on to pass another law that is still in effect until today. Okay. After I mean, I remember mm-hmm. learning about it as like suicide is actually illegal. Right. But if you're successful at it, then like who are you going to prosecute right and if you're unsuccessful at it then you're on it's right it's unsuccessful yeah um and then who like you just don't prosecute someone who attempted suicide right you know yeah other things going on so yeah so then you look at someone assisting you with unaliving yourself and it's kind of like assisting you with murder so yeah i i i get it from that angle yeah So after he did assist uh, Janet Atkins in 1990, he went on to assist another 130 terminally ill people to their deaths between 1990 and 1998. 
Again, it's really important to emphasize that the patients themselves would take the final action. Dr. Kevorkian would connect them to his self-made machines, but the patient would then have to press the button or release the strap that ultimately released the substance that would end their life. So again, he did go to trial on these cases. He actually went four times. It was three times that were involved in the case that where it found the statute unconstitutional. But three times he was found not guilty, and on the fourth time there was a mistrial. So it was pretty clear by this point that the people of Oakland County, Michigan, did not want to see him convicted or prosecuted for this. So it was still definitely very controversial, but people were getting kind of sick of wasting tax dollars trying to convict this man when it seemed like they were getting nowhere. So now I wanted to back up and talk about a couple of different things here. So for one, these are very morbid details, but I wanted to talk about the euthanasia devices themselves. So he had two of them. One he called a Thanatron, which is Greek for death machine. And this device would introduce the euthanizing agent intravenously, so through an IV. And then the second was called a Mercytron, meaning mercy machine. And that machine was a gas mask in which he would release carbon monoxide. And again, in both systems, the patient themselves would be the one to take the final act that either started the IV or started the gas. Um, I recently went to Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum when I was in Vegas, and they actually have a couple of rooms that are dedicated completely to Dr. Kevorkian. The first one, when you walk in, is set up like it's his office. It features some of his paintings on the wall. He was also really well-versed in oil paintings. He's very talented. He definitely liked to focus on the dark and the morbid, as you can see from the paintings. I mean, there are things like... Um, one is like a man scratching at flesh. It's like a skeleton, basically, and he's like just scratching. It's all bloody. And then there's a lot of really death-focused ones. He he did like a series where he was trying to basically make visualizations of what it would feel like to have different diseases. So he did one where it's like you have a fever, it's a man burning on fire, things like that. The second room that you go into in the museum actually has what they call the death van. So what would happen is Dr. Kevorkian would try to find comfortable places to assist in these suicides, but it wasn't always possible for legal reasons or just for the comfort of the patient themselves. So what he would do sometimes would be to take them out in a Volkswagen bus that he had. They would go out to the woods. He would put a stretcher in the back of the van, and then the patient would be hooked up to the machine in the back of the van and and commit suicide in the van itself. So the museum actually has the van and it has the Thantron in the van as well with a stretcher in there. It's very creepy. It was, I don't want to say cool, but it it was a cool experience, you know, to see it (laughs) firsthand, but it's definitely very heavy at the same time because you know at least one person had passed away that way. Because Janet Atkins herself was definitely in the death van when she passed. I remember that with Zach Baggins when he got the van, that being a big deal. I think they did a whole oh, really? <laughs> TV special on it. Yeah. yeah. In the room, too, when you first walk in with the death van, they are playing this like classical song in the background. And it is a song that Dr. Kevorkian also composed himself because he also did music. He did like everything. He's just like a true renaissance man, I guess. He was a jazz musician. He, in fact, put out an entire album in 1997. And the 
little bit of a creepy part about this, though, is that he would offer to play his own music to his patients as they were dying. So the music that you do hear at the museum likely was played while some of the people Ooh, were dying. Gross. Yeah. So it's, it's mm. not great. The other thing I wanted to talk about was who represented him. So he was represented by Jeffrey Figer, who oh, is a very yes. controversial <laughs> figure is, is in our community. Was that like his first? Case I think where he, he did like got Jenny Jones or? first. I, I believe. Oh, or these were kind no. of around the same time, probably. They might have overlapped. So Jenny Jones was that the? It was the, the one with case? the murder case. He oh, represented that was the awful. victims, parents, or family members oh, in okay. suing so he's Jenny the good Jones. Guy now. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yep. And his um, there is. I think it's called. It might be called Trial by Fire, which is funny because we almost called the podcast that. <laughs> but there's something like it's called something like that on Netflix where they actually interview Figer and they show parts of his cross examination of Jenny Jones. And it is like spot on. Like it, it's awesome. Okay. He he does a great job. Yeah. Jeffrey Figer himself is just he's a big figure in the local legal community. He's controversial. I like him personally. I think he has like a very charismatic like personality that connects with the jury and he does a good job he's definitely a big personality though (laughs) yeah listen like if you look at any local big law attorney yeah obnoxious commercial yep i can think of a handful of attorneys that if i were to judge them just based on their commercials (laughs) or reputation i'd be like yeah i'm not gonna hire you right i i mean I don't know if I talked about this before, but like that trope, especially on like uh, Law and Order, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, that lawyer, I hate that lawyer. Yeah, they always get the their clients off. As, oh, right, as innocent and oh, they're so sketchy because this person really did a bad thing. And then like, then the police officer gets accused of a crime, and immediately no they way. hire the most obnoxious story. defense attorney because right. it's like this is the person who gets results. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So Dr. Kravorkian was tried um, again four times for assisting suicides between May 1994 and June of 1997. He was acquitted outright on three of the cases and the fourth resulted in a mistrial. So for seven years, he was essentially untouchable and his wins just increased public support of the cause. In fact, there was an election for prosecutor during this all happening and the incumbent lost to the new prosecutor and it's believed largely because it was so unpopular that he kept trying to prosecute Dr. Kevorkian. A lot of people felt like it was just a waste of tax dollars and so they wanted someone else and when the new prosecutor took office he basically stopped the prosecution at that time he was like you know Dr. Kevorkian can keep doing what he's doing don't don't step outside of this very clear role that we've said you can be in with this basically he didn't listen to that (laughs) he did not he continued to speak publicly which of course in and of itself is fine um his very famous saying was dying is not a crime um which I agree with wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. and I think he did a lot of of good for the right to die movement throughout Mm -hmm. his career but I think the public support and the fact that he felt untouchable was really his downfall at the same time yeah I think he was really emboldened right by yeah in a in a not good way exactly yeah 
And so on November 22nd of 1998, he appeared on 60 Minutes and allowed them to air a videotape that he made on September 17th of 1998 of the assisted suicide of a man named Thomas Yuke, uh, who was 52 and in the final stages of Lou Gehrig's disease. After Yuke had provided his informed consent, Dr. Kevorkian himself administered the lethal injection. And this became the key argument for the prosecution was that Dr. Kevorkian could no longer claim that this was mere assistance of suicide, but rather it was murder in this case because he was the one to pull the trigger, so to speak. Oh, because he wasn't strong enough to do it himself? I don't know if that was the reason. Why was he the one that did it? My sense is no. So the sense that I get is that by... By this time in his career, Dr. Kevorkian wanted to push this issue as far as he could. He wanted to see the oh, right to okay. die. He wanted to see it go before the U.S. Supreme Court. He was very open about that, and he thought that he was going to be basically the poster child so he, to make it happen. Okay, yeah. So he turned himself into a test case thinking that he was yes, going to win. And exactly. So It wasn't about getting away with it anymore. It was right. really about right. something bigger. Yeah. So during the videotape, he does also practically dare the authorities to try to prosecute him so again i think Mm. like he's he's got a lot of hubris going on at this point and i think that's what his downfall ultimately was three days after the videotape was aired dr kevorkian was charged with second degree murder and the delivery of a controlled substance that one's interesting he had lost his medical license by that point so they were saying the fact even if this had been an assisted suicide he could have still been charged with delivering the controlled substance because he didn't have legal permission to have it at that time either. So he gets charged, and here's where he kind of makes his first big mistake in all of this. He doesn't hire Figer again. It's not clear whether or not he fired him or what happened. I think some of what happened... um, So I watched the movie on HBO Max called You Don't Know Jack, which is a fictionalized version of this. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Kevorkian had seen the film before he passed and was happy with how it portrayed him. So I believe to some extent this is correct. But the movie very much makes it seem like Figer and Kevorkian kind of became good friends throughout all this, which does make some sense. They're both smart, very ambitious men that were interested in challenging the law, essentially. Yeah. But then Figer ran for governor in the middle of all of this. And he was very vocal when asked if he supported the right to die. He said no. He said he would not enact it if he was elected governor. So I think that kind of drove a wedge between them. And I think Dr. Kevorkian no longer really fully trusted him, especially to be the one to argue this all the way to the Supreme Court. I think so, too. Also, it's like if you're the attorney, you're telling him, you know, don't cross this line. Right. And then he crosses that line. Right. And it's like, I don't know if you can continue representing yeah, him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So either way, he decides not to proceed with Jeffrey Figer, but he also just decides he isn't going to find his own attorney at all. He's going to just oh, represent no. himself. So again, he, Genius. Right. He was, he was obviously a very smart man and very talented, but he didn't have any legal training or experience. And law, honestly, isn't necessarily always about simply making the best argument. Like, nope. a lot of it's about knowing the rules and procedures. It's about mm-hmm. knowing what you can do, when to do it. Um, And that's ultimately where he struggled. He wasn't able to produce any sort of witnesses because the court did not deem any of their testimony relevant. And he also had trouble presenting his evidence for the same reasons. Um, Yeah, that's that's always their biggest problem with with self-represented clients is Mm -hmm. since 
we can only do so much coaching from the side. We can tell them like, here's your argument. But it's like to try to tell someone like how to cross-examine someone, how to raise an objection on a question. Mm -hmm. Like, is it hearsay? What are, like, it's, you can't teach someone three years of law school. Right. Exactly. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. So yeah, that is, and that's the biggest thing too, when you're making arguments in front of a judge is you have to get the evidence in there first. Yeah. So that's the hardest thing. Right. Yeah. And there was some legal drama that kind of went on behind the scenes here too. Um, Initially he had been charged, I believe both with second degree murder and with the um, assisted suicide. But then what the prosecutor decided to do was to dismiss the assisted suicide, which made the testimony of the family members of the deceased irrelevant because it didn't matter if they had seen him murder someone. Versus, So the testimony that this man wanted to die, it, it ultimately mm, didn't matter okay. because, yeah. um, you know, it didn't matter if he wanted to die or not. It was still murder if Dr. Kevorkian was the one who caused his death. So that's why the um, the witnesses were deemed irrelevant as well. So he wasn't able to have any of this person's family members come and speak to the jury or anything like that, which I think made probably a big difference. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're looking at what are defenses to murder. Exactly. Right. He wanted me to murder him. It's, right. It's not. A, right. That's not a thing. Yeah. It's not self-defense. It's not incapacity. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there might have been some sort of arguments there that a lawyer would have made that Dr. Kaborkian just, you know, didn't think to make before the trial took place um, yeah. and before he kind of got stuck in that position as well. Um, so don't represent yourself, folks. <laughs> like, even if you're an attorney, like, I would definitely hire someone else to represent me if I ever got in criminal trouble for some reason. Yeah. But yeah, especially criminal trouble. Yeah. You are entitled to a court appointed attorney right. in, in those charges. So, yeah. All right. But um, the trial was only two days long, which is pretty short, not only for a murder trial in general, but definitely for one that was of this magnitude and importance. And I think, again, that was probably because he represented himself. He didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't really put on an adequate defense for himself the way that his attorneys had at the previous court dates. I mean, voir dire could take two a week right. or two. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 He did have an uphill battle again this time because he had been the one to administer the injection, so he couldn't argue that he was just a bystander. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury did find Dr. Kaborkian guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 10 to 25 years in the Michigan Department of Corrections. He ultimately spent a little over eight years in prison, and then he was paroled for good behavior on June 1st of 2007, and also for some health issues because that's when the hepatitis C started really causing him some significant issues was back in 2006. So they actually had expected that he might pass away by the time he was released. But ultimately, he was released and he did live another, I believe, four years before he passed. He did promise the parole board that he would no longer assist in suicides directly, but that he would keep campaigning to challenge the law that restricted them. And he was also forbidden as a term of his parole from directly describing the procedures that could be done for assisting suicide. So basically, he couldn't Mm. teach other people verbally how to commit suicide either or other doctors how to assist in patients committing suicide. 
Um, after his release from prison, he would go on to do numerous lectures at universities on various topics, including the euthanasia and legal reform of the topic. And then he even ran for Congress in 2008. He ran as an independent, and he did secure 2.6% of the vote, which is pretty significant for a non-major huh. party candidate. Um, it was double what the other two minor party candidates got, um, but he did lose to Democrat Gary Peters. And then... Um, as okay. I said, Dr. Kevorkian did pass away on uh, June 3rd of 2011 in Royal Oak. Um, it was a direct result of the hepatitis C that he had contracted from his experiments. Um, he's buried in Troy, Michigan. The epitaph on his gravestone reads, he sacrificed himself for everyone's rights. When I was little, I never really associated him with the state of Michigan so much. Yeah. And like, obviously now, like I knew, but I didn't know he died in Royal Oak. I didn't know he's buried in yep. Troy. We could go visit. We could. Great. We should, actually. Ooh. Yeah. It's very That's a easy. good idea. Do you know what cemetery he's in? Um, I do. I didn't write it in my notes, but it did say okay. it. Okay. So I can find out. Text it to me okay. and I'll go. Take a, a snapshot. <laughs> Yeah. And so that's so. the case of Dr. Kevorkian. Um, one other fun fact that I did learn from the movie, and I looked it up this morning, it is true. At one of his um, original three cases, one of the ones that he got a not guilty on, he did show up to court dressed as Thomas Jefferson one day. So he was very oh like, theatrical throughout this whole thing, too. And the reason he did that was apparently Jefferson had... Um, had argued that patients with cancer should be allowed to kill themselves. He wasn't arguing physician-assisted suicide, but apparently had made some sort of comments about we should legalize suicide for those people. Um, mm -hmm. And so Dr. Kevorkian was like, if it's okay for him, then it should be okay for me. And it became this whole just like well, spectacle. I think a lot of people, and I, I guess it, I'd have to look at like actual official studies, but I would think most people now would agree with some version of assisted suicide yeah. but it would have to be highly regulated right like multiple doctors signing off saying like yes this person yeah. is like terminal they have x amount of time to live their quality of life would be right whatever they still have the capacity to make this decision mm -hmm. um and it would have to be for like physical health not mental health because i've right. heard people trying to make that slippery slope straw man argument yeah. of like well, if anyone can just choose to kill themselves, like, what? why can't you just say, I have depression. I don't want to be here anymore. Like, that's just suicide. And it's like, I've I've struggled with depression. Mm -hmm. I've had family and friends. I've known, I've had close friends that I've lost to suicide. Yeah. So it's like, I don't want to take this lightly at all. Right. And like most people who attempt suicide without, you know, this medical issue in the background if they survive it they usually say yeah i regret it doing right. that so yeah. it's it's very different to separate like the mental illness from like death with dignity and choosing yeah. to go out a certain way because just and i and i request this jack i requested jack co-working specifically because just watching my grandpa die it's like you know, he's a very religious man. He would not have wanted to, to go down this path. Yeah. And that's great. That's great for him. But if I was in his shoes, like, I don't know. Like, I would right. at least like to have that option. Yeah, me of, too. Like, not having my family having to come visit me every single day for the last two or three weeks of my life. Not right. knowing exactly when it'll happen. And going through that pain and everything. It's like, 
I, and I can't remember what movie it was now, but I remember watching a movie and I think it was Kathy Bates, but she held this huge party with all of her friends and like had a great time. And then mm-hmm. like later that night, like, I don't know if it was assisted, like a physician assisted or mm-hmm. she just overdosed on her own. Yeah. But it was like later disclosed that she was diagnosed with terminal cancer mm-hmm. or some sort of like Alzheimer's or something yeah. like that, where it's like, I want to go out with like just this great quality of life right and not have to suffer or anything exactly like that. right yeah I, and as i said it just needs to be highly regulated i think we have as a society need to figure out like where we are drawing those exact lines yeah um and i definitely like kevorkian at some point definitely crossed the line right and uh i'm all for all of his speeches and everything like that but uh yeah right yeah no i I agree entirely. Like I, I hundred percent support his cause. Um, I agree mm-hmm. with him. Dying is not a crime, but mm-hmm. like you said, like I mean, he crossed the line. I, I'm not even saying morally, but definitely clearly legally, he had crossed yes, the line. Legally, yeah. He, um, you know, I think with the moral objection that people have, I think if you really sit down. And argue that with yourself, most people's moral objection comes from religious beliefs that it's God's will and you shouldn't have the ability to overcome God's will, which I can respect that. But there is a separation of church and state. And so that shouldn't be the reasoning that we're using to enact these laws. And I don't think that there is an ethical or moral reason to outlaw it um, once we really break it break it all down i mean like you said it has to be really severely regulated but i mean we remove people from feeding tubes all the time and let people die that way mm-hmm. like that's a lot more cruel of a death than if you were to give that same person some sort of euthanasia yeah so. yeah and i mean i'm just thinking i think there's been some prosecution of of kids specifically of like egging someone else on to yeah commit suicide and then that's illegal right and and even that's been legally kind of hard to connect that and it's like yeah of course they should still be punished they're that person had nothing wrong with them yeah versus like assisted suicide in like physician assisted going through some sort of regulated process and yeah not just bullying someone into exactly something like that yeah and that is in fairness some of what the um controversy around Dr. Kevorkian is as well. There was an article, the Wikipedia article cites something from the Detroit Free Press that says something like 60% of his patients weren't actually terminally ill when there was an autopsy performed. And that's one of the big criticisms is that he didn't thoroughly enough investigate these cases. I didn't want to talk about that so much in depth because I tried to track down the original article and it doesn't seem to be available online. Um, and mm-hmm. I just did not have the time to actually like try to go to a library and find it. Um, but without seeing But I think the, that's also people's objections too. It's like yeah. you don't know what medical miracles around the corner either. Right. You know? Yeah. Like in as much as like you could have like three opinions from three different doctors and say, yes, you have two months to live and then right. you end up living another two years. So Right. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Yeah. All right. That's all I have for this week, though. Did you have a self-care? Um, oh, I not... did. Yeah, I did. Just real quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me go back to my notes. Oh, it was just... Um, 
spend quality time with your chosen family. Yeah. Um, either your actual actual family or just who you decided to consider family. Um, I know it's always hard, you know, living a really active, busy life as a working person and, you know, everyone has stuff going on. But when you can make the time, make sure it's quality time mm-hmm. and just in, just enjoy each other while we're still here. Yeah. Continue making memories. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, we will see you next week. And remember, uh, don't represent yourself. Always hire a lawyer. Bye. Bye.